Hello and welcome to Shop Small, Eat Big, where each episode we'll be speaking to an artisan food or drink business, baking, brewing, creating, making fantastic produce and selling it throughout the UK. We get under the hood to understand what inspired them, how the business got started and the detail and love that goes into their products. Hope you enjoy listening. If you do, please give us a like, share, follow on our social media page, Pueblo UK, and any comments, please feel free to reach out on our contact email, hello at pueblofood.co. Today's episode, we get stuck in into some good old-fashioned grape juice chat with the wonderful Vicky Potter of Carafe Wine. Carafe Wine is all about enabling people to understand and enjoy good wine that you would never find lurking on the unencharting supermarket shelves. I can't even say too much about this episode. I would not want to spoil it. Do you love drinking wine? Are you romanticized by the stories that they can tell? Just have a listen to this and I'm sure you'll agree us British consumers and wine lovers benefit significantly from having a wine personality like Vicky and her company Carafe that brings it out for us to enjoy. So Vicky, thank you very much for uh, for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the podcast. Um, so Carafe Wine, um, I think for all of our intrigued listeners out there, um, could you tell us a little bit about the reasons behind why you started the business, why you started Carafe Wine and I think the reasoning behind it? Because I, I sense that there's a real there's a real gap here that you're filling and I think there's a lot of people that demand wines that are not um that are off the beaten path I think I think, that, I think that's the point of the business isn't it but it'd be as always great to hear it from um from the horse's mouth as it were yeah absolutely um so I actually started Carafe Wine um after my passion that was actually bred from um two years in Sydney Australia and um, I work for the wine um I worked for a company called Merivale over there. Yeah. Um, they had so, so many venues. And one of the ones I stumbled into was actually um, working within one of their um, wine divisions. And I just fell in love with it. Um, the whole romanticism that kind of comes with wine as well. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was wonderful. Um, but from then, it just kind of like started my journey that all I wanted to do was actually um, kind of be around wine and actually advance in it. What, what is it about... Um... What, what, I mean, I've, I've heard this before and it's perfectly normal, but what's the, what do you think is the motive behind the romanticism, like behind wine? I mean, as you said, it, it's a real love affair. And I think that there are lots of careers and lots of businesses out there that you, you just don't get that same, that same feeling, that same love and passion like you do for wine. And I think there's a big community of people that are super passionate about it. Like what, what do you think? It seems unique. Uh, 
Um, I, I think it's very unique in the fact that when you're working with wine, not only are you connected to actually visiting loads of places around the globe, um, so you get to travel with it, um, which is so wonderful in the industry, um, but also you're connected with different languages because obviously you have to think of the different um, domains all around the world. Um, you learn um, different like appellations and Bordeaux and all the different names and all sorts. Um, so it's so wonderful to actually like, um, I've, I've seen so many quotes saying that wine doesn't grow in an ugly place. It's all about beautiful places. So I think from the industry, you can um, discover really like kind of hidden gems within the globe. I know like um, really interesting um, regions that are now just starting to kind of um, pop up and like and have the kind of spotlight on um, similar to Greece. Um, mm. bits like that. Um, I mean, um, Greece has got one of their red wines called Zeno Mavro that's now been described as like a baby Barolo. There's so much more that people just need to kind of actually know about wine. And I always believe that a good... Um, good sommelier is a storyteller in essence and I think that's so lovely to actually bring the kind of like literary character to it to actually um, break it down make it approachable and um, talk about wines in a different way that isn't just oh this taste of red fruits or white fruits or anything yeah it's actually get a bit more into depth than I know um some of my wines as well um I love the grape um um, so some of the Spanish grapes, um, Xreola, um, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. It begins with an X and terrible at it. But um, it reminds me of um, my childhood sweet, like um, rhubarb and custard sweets when I smell it. And yeah. it's nice to have that kind of anecdotal connection, I guess, to wine as well. Uh, absolutely. And I think you made a really good point there about sort of breaking the barriers down. I, I, I sense that a lot of people can be sort of relatively apprehensive about talking about wine unless you are or you know you're certified in, in a certain way or you have um you know a qualification such as being a a, a sommelier um well, absolutely but also i funnily enough i'm um, just you saying that just um piggybacking on your point i actually find it funny that even in the industry I still feel like that myself it feels like a big kind of contest where people want to be oh I'm a big I know a bit more than you and it's very much um (laughs) even when I know about wine I feel like they'll be like but you do you know this and they're trying to challenge you on it so regardless of not studying how you do in the industry I think there's always going to be some sort of elite um yeah and pretentious wine which I really want to break down and that's something I really want to do as part of carafe how do you go about doing that? I mean, I appreciate that that's quite a big question, isn't it? And you probably break it down into small components, but what what in your in your eyes, how do you break a, a stigma like that down? Is it, you know, just a case of 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 opening the doors and just in and just allowing that two-way communication so that customers of of craft wine can <clears throat> openly ask you a question about x y and z or you know is it is it that is it openness of communication or is it something a little bit a little bit deeper um, I mean, for me personally, I just try and talk to guests, um, like my guests, my clients, as if they were my friends, my mates. Um, I try and by using language like that, like um, I, mm. I use a lot of language in the site, like, hey, um, welcome to your new best friend and bits like that. <laughs> and to be a very mother of wine and bits like that, very much like kind of, um, I, I try and describe it as like the Disneyland for adults. Because when you think of Disneyland, you just think of fun, you think of approachability. And I think that is something that regardless of us being adults we still need that kind of like whimsiness and yeah. you know you know that kind of fun to it um so I think a lot of it is the language that I um 
um, deploy on the site are, are called guest babe. I don't mind. It's a very, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm very unorthodox in that kind of way. But it, you're, you're, it's, you're it's taking away the, the I think Absolutely. Uh, you're taking away the, um, uh, the formality, I think of, of what people perceive to be in the wine industry. Right. As, as you say, I think you use the word elitist or maybe that was me. I can't remember, but I mean, I acknowledge it and I, do, I don't like it about the industry. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. There's so much things I love about the industry and I'm not just in the industry at all, but it does sometimes. Um, it can be very unapproachable. Yeah. What was your path like to, um, well, actually just, just question, are you a accredited sommelier? Um, I mean, I have my level two. Um, that's, well, that's <laughs> already hard enough. <laughs> that's already hard Absolutely. enough, is it not? Um, how, how how did you kind of get down that path of you know? You said you were working in working in Australia for for, for that business, but sort of like like before that, like what what kind of gave you your route into this industry? Yeah. Um, so funnily enough, I was actually studying a degree in event management. Um, that was in um, London and um, as part of my course um, they wanted to do a um, like year in industry and I decided you know what let's just go to Australia for it (laughs) Um, that could be worse places well absolutely but it was one of those things that the university was very much like "Hmm, okay do you actually have a job there before you go and all this and um, they they weren't very happy Kind of sign me off saying, yeah, you're going to go a year and away abroad. And funnily enough, though, all the work I did in Australia was completely related to my degree. Mm. Um, however, I am um, the company Merivale that I um, worked for over there. They um, they had so many venues all around. And um, as part of the contract, actually working and doing a holiday visa, you can only spend a couple of months in one place. Ah, okay. <laughs> Therefore, from that, I kind of kept balancing venues, which is really nice because it gave me like a, a holistic view of the business. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I um, stumbled into was the bottle shop on um, Palings Lane. And it was a side, a lovely florist and a lovely um, patisserie um, mm. where we used to, at the end of the night, just kind of like share bottles from each and I'll get free wine, I'll get free patisserie and we'll just give them some wine. It was wonderful. It's just like an artisan's um, paradise. It sounds beautiful. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I used to come into the someday and they used to have little post-it notes on the fridge saying free champagne help yourself and I was like okay you know what I think this is something that I could actually stay around in you know I like (laughs) it free free champagne yes the answer is yes it'll always be yes So, um, the, the company I work for as well, they used to import the best wines um, actually from Europe over and obviously the um, tastiest grape juice from Australia as, as well. Right. So when I ended up returning home to England, I saw so many producers and um, some that are only just starting to like kind of break waves in, in the UK. They're only just gaining in popularity. Mm. So I feel like I've kind of got this sixth sense about what's going to be popular. And that's what I really try and establish from my site on craft yet. And um interesting producers everything we get as well um i've completely cherry picked myself so it's it's not sometimes you can get big companies where they kind of push certain wines because they want those wines sold but everything i only take on something if i believe it which i think kind of like differentiates us from some other wine brands that's really interesting um and i I quite quite like the comment that you made about how you know, traveling away and, and being in places like Australia has enabled you to get a really good picture of trends. And then, you know, coming back into the UK, 
as you say, almost mm-hmm. like having sort of a, a, a sixth sense as to what's coming up next. Um, I, I suppose that's probably part and parcel of why you started up this business, why craft wine actually exists. That that, that I suppose is, is probably quite a critical point within your within your mission, is it not? Oh, it, it certainly is. I think as well, um, in the nicest way, from working in so many different and businesses, I've seen them do things really well and I've seen them do things yeah, you really learn. bad. That's a good and thing, I've isn't it? Had, you, know, you learn, you take that. Absolutely. I've, I've always had that kind of um, sense going, you know, well, if it was my business, I wouldn't do it that way. Or, oh, oh, that was such a good idea. I'd love to implement that. And I think from that, just after kind of bouncing around in different, um, different parts of the industry, even different industries, because I did a bit of research um, and all sorts so I think from it it's been like you know what I want to kind of put all those best aspects together I know what to avoid I know kind of thing I just want to kind of yeah do it on my own yeah so you you have your you have your reasoning you have your market gap your niche um you're quite quite clear on that and that makes it I think really easy to present um a, a business and a proposition to you know, to outbound to consumers that would like to come in and to, and to buy from you. Question, what, what did you find having started this business? I don't know if this is your first business or you've, or you've had others that you've set up yourself, but obviously if it is, if it is your first, were there any sort of particular challenges or sort of setbacks that, that, that you sort of immediately faced? I mean, what, what did you find just in your experience was kind of the hardest part of getting getting carafe wine off the ground yeah absolutely absolutely um so this is my first business um one of the things i remember when i was actually starting up is i really value the importance of marketing and that was something from the get-go i was like right i'm gonna get myself in this paper i'm gonna get myself here and this (laughs) kind of thing um, but I think one of the toughest things is actually establishing brand confidence and brand awareness. Um, I read a scary statistic that said 98% of the time, the ni- 98 of people, the first time they visit a website, they do not purchase from it, even if they're interested in the business. So I think when you kind of break down statistics like that, and as much wow. as now yeah. it's getting name out there, it's actually pushing people from just actually seeing the site opposed to over the borderline of them wanting to spend. Parting I mean, ways actually, with their uh... Uh, hard-earned dosh absolutely and mm. in the pandemic it's a completely different minefield because sure. you don't know what people's spending habits are um for me i always thought i'm i needed to gain to the crowd in the pandemic because um obviously people are drinking more at home so surely yeah. they want to be drinking less at home yeah. but now because how long the pandemic has gone on for there's some people that just particularly just want to get the cheapest thing just because they're not earning as much they're on furlough and then then when then when things start to open up then they they have the cash to start spending on um wine so i mean it's been it's it's been hit and miss just kind of figuring out where people want to spend their money at the moment it's just completely new i think and um, i spoke to quite a lot of retail shops at the moment and they've all said since the bars and restaurants have opened up the last two um weeks have actually been quite slow for them so it's nice to know i'm not kind of alone in that sense but it's just very much like kind of navigating new waters for everyone i guess yeah it is an industry i think it's a really interesting environment um i'd I'd read a um a statistic not again not sure sort of how official this is but that sort of last year was um the most amount of company registrations in in any other year 
um, yeah. which which I found is quite quite striking. I mean, I, you can read you can read into that in in many different ways, but I think the I think the key takeaway of that is that people are more willing than ever to um, to take a risk to take a gamble, as you said, if they have been um, you know been put on furlough or they've. Uh, you know, unfortunately had to, uh, or been made redundant or, or they've just been let go for whatever reason that there's, um, you know, a little bit more potentially a little bit more risk in the air, a little bit more innovation that people are willing to take a bit of a gamble and, and go for it. But to, to your point in terms of sort of resources on an individual level, like how much people are prepared to pay, it's interesting. You, you've kind of got on the one hand, you know, people have been at home for a long time and they've been drinking. So they've, they, you know, they've not been going out to restaurants and bars. But then on, as you say, on the, on the, on the other hand, there's the, you know, there is the income element. And obviously if that's a bit lower, perhaps the, the choice that, that, that a consumer makes when it comes to a bottle of wine and the convenience as well, right, is, you know, supermarkets have been doing very well haven't they that's i think that's the how how do you i mean there's again you're not you're solving nationwide problems but like mm-hmm. how, how do you feel that you know that you can get around that and that you can encourage you know people i mean i don't know what what, what necessarily what demographics you, you guys go for but you know how do you encourage people to um have a little bit of diversity when it comes to wine. Cause I mean, I sense that lots of people that do buy wine generally do, you know, and if they buy it regularly, they do generally care about what they're buying. So I think there is, you, you've got that as a strength, haven't you? Oh, almost oh, certainly. I mean, I think when it comes to, um, for instance, if you purchase wine in a supermarket, I mean, everyone just has their comfort bottle, you know, um, when people are uncomfortable about wine, they find a wine they like and they will hold on to it with all force. And every time <laughs> they come in, they go, well, I'll get the same bottle because at least I know I like it. And that is something that we just resoundingly That's, that's the chicken tikka um, masala effect that is, I think, isn't it? That's absolutely. <clears throat> Indian takeaway order, it's very much yeah. in that kind of like ballpark being like, I know what I'm, I like, that's what I'm getting. Yeah. Um, so the way that I think we've tried to get around that is actually um via first of all just offering free delivery with no minimum spend i think especially for a small independent business yeah. that's actually quite rarity yeah i'd agree um, i agree just- of someone to try something new and actually to give the confidence for them to be able to and like like no harm no foul like whatever your price point is just buy the bottle and um because every single tasting note on the site um is completely handwritten by myself um we have over 200 wines um in our inventory right now my god um, that's a lot of notes it, it certainly is the amount of essays and PDFs I've got just writing notes. Um, but I think it's so nice to oppose to, I think sometimes when you can see some tasting notes, they can be just a bit uninspired and they don't really tell you anything specific. But I think yeah. if you can kind of t- take someone or transport them in the tasting notes or give them something a bit anecdotal that they can actually relate to a bit more, it's so much easier. Like you hear of those um, gins that smell like Palmer violets selling really well. And it's, it's, it's very much similar to that. Just trying to, trying to find the right things. Um, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I'm trying to not be, um, kind of, um, I really want to be approachable with it as well. And um, funnily enough, um, I'm, I'm so honest with my tasting notes. Um, it's not one of the ones I sell, but um, I, I used to, um, 
I used to sell when I was working in different wine bars, this grape called Caserato. And um, for some reason, every time I smelt it, it smelt like um, Heinz baked beans. I <laughs> have no idea what it was. Um, it was such, such a bizarre smell. And every time I'd serve it to someone, they're like, there's such a familiar smell on this. I can't. I uh, can't understand what it is. And I'm like, oh, Heinz baked beans. They're like, that's it. Um, <laughs> well, then- so that wasn't just you then. So like, that, that, there was a, there was a clear <laughs> pattern there of Heinz baked beans running through. <laughs> this is mad. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. But it just makes me laugh, and I try and still have. I mean, I, I don't say any of my wines. Like, so I, did you I put that in your tasting wine. notes? Did you did you put did you put Heinz <laughs> baked beans on your tasting notes for that wine? <laughs> I mean, luckily, I do not sell this wine. It's personally not a wine that I particularly enjoy. I just think it's that expression of the grape. I have found that grape and blended recently with um Pinot Grigio, and it's so much more profitable. Um, but it's just quite funny. Like, I put um one of the um one of the wines I've got that has a long, um, a long finale, like at the end of a Whitney Houston ballad and stuff like that. <laughs> it's so nice to have something so different. So this so is an added value. Like, this is, uh, I, th- I think I'm getting, I'm, I'm building a better picture now of, of craft wine. You, you really, you're not just, you're not just buying wine. I, you're, you're buying the story behind it and not just you're buying the story. You're being, it's being narrated by, by you in a way. Hmm. I, I think I'm very good at actually talking to people face to face. So I think that's kind of been a challenge in the pandemic because at the moment my presence is purely online. Um, it's now trying to get out and like and places to actually say, hey, this is me. This is what the website's about. Um, because I think it's so easy to think that things until they actually read the tasting notes, they don't know that. They don't know the connection and everything behind and that everything's been completely um, written by scratch. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say... Are your and and I think you're very clear on this. So I think this is going to be a very easy easy question for you to answer. But like, what are your sort of core principles when it comes to the wines that you sell at, at Carafe? Do you have a sort of very sort of specific and clear guidelines that that you look for um, where, when you're bringing your inventory in? Yeah, yeah, most certainly. Um, so I think a lot of it is approachability. Mm. Um, I think it's just from the way the brands kind of tell their story. Um, I like to actually kind of feel like I'm connected with the producer. So if I can actually like um, envision the family picking the grapes on the hill with their like their, their dog next to them, you know, sniffing along the vines, that is something I love. And it makes it so much easier to um, sell the wine when you've actually got their story. Yeah. Um, I don't like it mass produce so i use small producers artisan producers i mean i even use um producers from london funnily enough um i use the wonderful black book that i actually had the opportunity to help bottle with them um last year in the in, in covid i was actually bottling the um pinot noir with them and that was wonderful wow that's a that is amazing uh, that's, a, that's a good question actually that i didn't think about but um i, I think this is a good one how, how do you perceive winemaking in the UK like now I mean I think there's been unparalleled like just unparalleled difference from like even 15 20 years ago and and I think we we're all aware that climate change has been a bit of a factor um there certainly over time but what's your perception of UK winemaking and is that are those wines that that you want to be able to um, to, to bring into craft as well. 
Um, so absolutely. So um, in terms of the UK wine industry, um, you're absolutely right. About 20 years ago, if someone offered you a glass of English wine, you go, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> But now I think um, that, yeah, they're, they're, they're wonderful. Um, our um, climate right now um, has actually been um, described as being very similar to what um, Champagne was like a decade ago. Um, so really, we're on the precipice of greatness, really. And I, I like that. To, it's a great line. The, the precipice of greatness. <laughs> Love that. Precipice of greatness in the UK wine industry. <laughs> and I mean, I think it's quite interesting as well. Um, and I, the, the way I do describe it is um, French producers kind of like, hanging around us like um, wasps on a summer picnic it very is much like that now they're all climatizing over to the UK to kind of they know we're onto something really good and that is why they're here so we have Pomery here now we have um, we have all sorts of um, different champagne producers over here that are actually doing their first vintages over here um, like trying to make champagne in England the English sparkling and because the French actually see the actual um, value in it um, we, we can't deny ourselves and I mean mm. one of my favorite producers the ones like Court Garden Charles Palmer and um, they do some of them I, I purely actually think they taste better than champagne wow. and that's not a lie at all I think that is better than some of the champagnes I've had um, but I think it's going to be quite interesting um, in a couple of years hopefully we can start to have a few um, red grapes actually ripen in the UK it's very um, early days of it <laughs> yeah. but, but hopefully when the climate keeps changing at the moment, we're just not getting the right um, kind of like sun or whatever to um, to ripen the red grapes. I mean, at the moment, we normally blend them in um, our kind of like version of champagne, our English sparkling, yeah. because they're not as pretty to have singly. Um, but hopefully we'll start to see a lot more. Like I know, obviously, um, English Pinot Noir is um, growing yeah. and hopefully there's something we keep seeing going forward. I'm seeing a lot of, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I sense that the majority of wines that are currently produced in the UK and you've you've obviously just mentioned it a little bit there but that's from my perception there's a lot of sparks like sparkling wine it's obviously the grapes that we're growing at the moment in the UK vis-a-vis our climate um is best for is for sparkling wine not so much for as you mentioned there the 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 red grapes obviously take that that need a little bit longer ripening obviously they need they need a warmer climate I guess fundamentally don't they which which just you know we might have to wait another 50 years and if no one changes our carbon uh, the amount of carbon emissions we're um, we're emitting Mm -hmm. then um, perhaps that is a that's a reality um but yeah so are you starting to see more than just sparkling wine now or, or do you sense that that's still the sort of majority and is likely to be the way for for the next few years there's still quite a lot of sparkling wine, but I think if people want to do sparkling wine in the UK, they want to do it on the English sparkling level. And there's so many different things that they have to do to get the English sparkling actually label on it because it is champagne method. Therefore, they have to have the lees in the bottle. They have to age it with the yeast and all sorts. And it's so much more time consuming to do. So if you just want a kind of easy wine, you can get onto the market within a year or so, then that's where you kind of want to do still wines. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you can get some beautiful still wines in the UK. I mean, the Chardonnay I've got from Blackburg, it was actually um, just recently described by the Financial Times as the Chablis on the Thames, which I absolutely <laughs> love that they've actually managed to um, coin that as a term. And I mean, hopefully um, it will be that age worthy like um, Chablis. But yeah, that, that is, it, it's interesting to see the different um, dynamics and not even just in England itself. But um, recently I've gotten some wine from um, Ancre Hill, um, which is actually in Wales. Wow. And it's actually a 
sparkling red unfiltered um, in Wales and it has like a um, crown cap on it and everything it's absolutely wild um, but it is nice to see that people are kind of being a bit playful with our um, land as well to just get something a bit different you know but also really respecting the grapes it's having that kind of balance is there a market for it like do like us you know when I say us I am kind of generalizing the you know the UK consumers so what what are you know our perceptions towards national wines um I, I suppose I get a sense that like super I mean supermarkets I think you, you, you're starting to see a, f- a few more um locally produced wines uh, not obviously not just in supermarkets but in wine shops as well it's coming so do you think that there is quite a high demand from from the, from the actual consumer for um you know nationally made you know sorry domestically made wines as as opposed to just your you know your, your classic french or spanish or australian um, I, I think there is. However, um, a lot of it is just the willingness for people to try. I feel in terms of trends in the wine industry, it always kind of starts in London where you have like these little niche, like kind of natural wine bars and it's like that. And people are like, oh, this is so cool. I had that in London once. And then it starts to actually kind of spread out and start going into little like neighborhoods or it's all kind of like funky in the no places. Um, to be honest, though, when it comes to wines being in the supermarket, um, I think so many wine producers kind of see that as the death of that art mm. um, it's very much like it kind of just blends in and once it's on the supermarket shelves as well um it's completely up to the supermarkets of how they want to brand it um everything they have like no no choice out how everything is once it's in the supermarket it's kind of the supermarkets like property per se mm. um so it, it's quite <clears throat> nice to try and find like independent ones or something a bit a bit different so I, th- I think i think the demand is there i mean certainly i actually can't the sparkling really funny like um pet nat also it, it, it's a sparkling red but it's a pet nat so pet nat is kind of a bit it's got a slight fizz like and what's that a pet nat what's a what is a pet nat <laughs> to be honest i'm gonna have to double check the check the definition but it's like so so um petite petite sparkling mm. um per se so it's like kind of got the froth like um like you would on like a kind of bubble bar something like just so just so um <laughs> those kind of bubbles but then it kind of just fades and then it's much more like kind of like a still wine it's kind of not quite sparkling not quite still it's kind of in the borderline of place yeah um but I, I actually can't get my hands on any more of the sparkling red at the moment they've completely sold out and that's from wales sparkling pet nat from wales <laughs> and it's sold out so the demand well maybe that answers my question maybe maybe that maybe that just answers my question entirely doesn't it yeah i mean you know sparkling Sparkling wine from Wales it has been cleared out. So there, there's your answer. I can't get the orange wine either. They have an orange wine that they've called Clockwork Orange. And orange wine is a white wine with extended skin contact that actually gives like an orange hue to it. Um, and it's, it's kind of, I guess... Um, when, when you do red wine in production, you actually leave the skins on um, to actually have that kind of like colour contact. It. Um, so it's a white wine with that colour contact. Um, and and I, I, I can't even get the orange wine. That's actually only ever on allocation. It's terribly, terribly hard to get. But it does show you that things are changing. People want interesting stuff. And I think with some of the orange wines as well, they can be a bit similar to craft beers. So you know, and now um, we're kind of going into a completely different category altogether. <laughs> And I love, I, I, but I love that though. And I think there's, um, 
I don't know if you, you know, if you, if I think you may have listened to a couple of the episodes from, from this podcast and I've recorded quite a few now. And I think one of the, one of the trends that, that I'm, that I suppose that you're really, really seeing, and it's well evidenced by, by businesses like yours is just the fact that people are more, more aware these days about where things come from, how they are made, um, like what they're buying, like fundamentally, like there's just more of a, a care and they're willing to take the time out to observe what it is that they're buying and what, what this, what this company stands for in terms of its ethics and morals, um, the ingredients, the packaging, you just, you just get a sense that there's a real more, more than ever. I think this is kind of one of the first generations where you're seeing that, you know, that we, we're coining that phrase, you know, shop, you know, support local, shop local. Um, there really seems to be quite a movement and perhaps maybe it's not as mainstream as, um, you know, you don't see it and it's not, it's not something that you see in the press every day, but I think it's very well evidenced here. I mean, just, just like you mentioned with the, with the Welsh wine company, the way that they're getting cleared out, like I would have never, you would have never known that, but it's no, no, not at all. I, I tried it on a whim and then just fell in love with them. Um, so, so it is interesting to see how um, the times are changing. Um, but in respect to like supporting local as well, people do want to know all behind of where the products are from, like the kind of foundations, the beliefs of the company they're even buying for. Um, so I think that's one of the things as well that's actually quite interesting to mention about Carafe. Um, we have actually joined um, part of a wonderful movement called 1% for the Planet. Um, yeah. And 1% of the planet, they um, donate at minimum, um, being a member, you donate at minimum 1% of all annual sales to environmental charities. Um, so it's nice to just kind of have that foundation from day one wanting to give back. I don't kind of want that um, corporate social responsibility kind of hanging over me, thinking, oh, I need to give back, I need to give back. How big do you need to be to do it? So it's, it's nice yeah. for us to actually just get that from day one, just kind of established into who we are. Yeah, I think that, as you say that, and that completely sort of fits in with, with who, who with who you are and what 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 the business is about. So no, that's class. Well, I think that's a, that's amazing, um, and, and and kind of on that subject more broadly, I, I sense that you guys also, you do have a very strong strong eco focus as well as a as a business as you, you even. I think yeah, I think I saw quoted on your site that there's a lot of love and care that goes into the goes into the packaging even as well as that again is that sort of something that you really sort of thought about when you know you set up the business and you were delivering the wines so you wanted it to be in packaging that was sustainable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it even came to the. Um down to the details like the um, adhesive on our like tape is like and our stickers is it biodegradable and all this kind of things because I think really now establishing a business in the 21st century it doesn't make sense to have to pivot later down the line if from day one you try and do it right um, I, I didn't want to have to do you see all these things about corrective um, press releases having to go oh now without plastic why 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 yeah. if, if you're starting a business <clears throat> in the 21st century why why are you doing it with plastic in the first place? So I think from day one, I was very kind of cautious on that. Um, with any time I was getting anything printed, it was like, well, how sustainable is this? How can I kind of move forward with this? Um, so one of the things I did as well, which I um, I've actually sourced um, vintage um, kind 
of wraps, um, which are actually wrap around the bottles. Um, so they're kind of like, yeah, so nice little kind of like knot wraps, something a bit different, mm. opposed to having to like wrap around with all sorts um, that were kind of like, um, yeah, just something a bit different, you know, and then people can, um, it's a good repurposing for like bits of fabric or whatnot that you've got um, kind of, kind of around that and people aren't really going to do much with and then that kind of goes to a new home and it's something just a bit different really yeah completely um now something that i am really curious about um knowing a little bit more on i i wouldn't class myself as as a wine nerd at all but um i'm really interested in um and and i think you've used the term sort of like natural wines which i think you've sort of openly said on your site that yeah it's quite a quite a sort of vague and ambiguous term and i think there's a lot of subcomponents within whether a wine is being natural and there was one that stood out to me that i'd never i'd never heard of and that was uh low intervention um <laughs> which obviously just feels like a wine you would never ever have um in a in a, in a mainstream shop or less likely to, to to find that so um what 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 is that exactly, and is that on trend now? Are people people buying that type of wine? Of course. Um. So when it comes to um low intervention wine, the best way that I kind of um describe it is if the winemaker kind of is like the self soothing parent. It kind of lets the um kid um cry itself out, you know. And I mean that that's <laughs> what I think very much like the grapes. They kind of just leave them to their own devices. They only actually intervene when kind of needed. Um. But they want to just let them do their job, and they want them to kind of learn on their own. Um. So I think a lot of um low intervention wine. Um. They they wouldn't low intervention is then they don't intervene so they mm. don't really do much to it they, they let the grapes kind of do their job and let the grapes kind of speak to them and tell them really what the wine they they that they're going to be in all sorts i mean um a lot of low intervention wine as well a lot of it is biodynamic um so mm. biodynamic wine they do all sorts um with biodynamic wine where they actually look at the positions of the moon and they do certain things for certain days depending on the phase of the moon so they may um My they God, may look at so they leave some of the other day they do pruning on certain days and it's all to do with the faces of the moon it's all to do with um energies and putting energies into the bottles into the barrels sometimes they play music i remember once um when i was working in london a guy came in and he was like this is what we used to pay the play to the grapes and he's coming out with a big acoustic guitar being like this is what we put against our chilean like sub and i was like, okay um, but it is interesting to actually see that they do different stuff and they say that um there's different music that they play that actually instills different energies um but i mean I mean, some of it can seem a bit out there, but I guess it depends on different people's kind of like beliefs. And I guess it's really the principles that's actually behind those methods. Um, But I mean, they've had experiments like this in school where they've had two plants next to each other and they've told the kids to insult one and compliment the other. And the one they've insulted has died, even though all the conditions are the same, except for the actual words you put in. So there is some sort of method behind the madness. I mean, I'm certainly not a scientist to actually know that, but it is interesting <laughs> <laughs> i'm just having images of like um sort of someone playing like slipknot or some just some really heavy <laughs> metal to like some grapes and they're just absolutely <laughs> hating it um and they, and they and they die as a result of hearing of hearing such uh, <laughs> such monstrous sounds it's just bizarre yeah. um is that is that something that's been going for i mean 
going for a long time in terms of like using i think you you kind of quoted it as like different energies and uh, i think i think that's probably the, the the best way to broadly define it um has that been going on for a very long time it seems very kind of on the fringe of of, of wine making i i mean as a consumer i suppose yeah. as a consumer i've not heard about it yeah, um, certainly. So I actually use um, this one brand um, called Nikoluf, mm. um, which is from, I believe, Germany. Oh, no, Germany. Austria. Mm. Austria. Um, and they actually um, they actually started doing this method um, very, very early on. Um, they have one. They have the um, earliest um, biodynamic. Um, sorry, they've got the earliest um, biodynamic vineyard um, ever. Um, they, they've been doing it kind of since day one. Um, their history has dated back almost um, um, 2,000 years, um, but they were the very first ones to actually go biodynamic or anything. Um, so, so it has been a very, very long practice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> some people just say, yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't know about it, um, but they were... The, they were um, yeah, they were the first, they hold, held the title as the first biodynamic wine estate in Europe from 1971. Um, so it has been going for a much longer time than we're, we're even really aware of. Uh, that's amazing. That, that's in, that's incredible. And I just, I'm sorry, I just I just keep having images now of people playing like the guitar <laughs> and stuff, or it just insult, or insulting grapes to to um like pro- pro- prohibit their growth that's just just absolute madness did you have anything on at the moment i mean in terms of like the whether you know whether it's a sort of a low intervention wine or it's something where they're um you know playing a bit of cold play to to help them uh grow a little bit further <laughs> Oh, oh, absolutely. They try and do all sorts. Like some of them, they try and have certain plants next to them, like certain bees and that to kind of like help. And some of them, they really let them kind of like overgrow with different things next to them to kind of have a nice. um, That's why so many wineries as well have olive trees that's like that next to it. It's kind of like nature kind of doing its job. And I've always seen great as well that like a wine does not grow in like an ugly place. They're all in pretty places. And it's all because of the harmony and the energies of those places. Yeah. And what sort of, so like, what is the opposite of low intervention in terms of, I mean, obviously they, they, they intervene more, but like in, in what way does a winemaker intervene in the winemaking process that doesn't let the grapes just, you know, you know, as you, as you mentioned about, um, the little, the little child just having a good old cry and the parent just sort of going, eh, let's just, let them get on with it for a little while stop like what what sort of interventions would sort of normally occur in the in the winemaking process yeah um so when you get quite um like mass produced wines a lot of them that actually put in like certain flavors because they want to um they're putting artificial flavors to actually bring out certain things because they want you to be able to taste um taste certain things for instance if with chardonnay as well sometimes when they want to get those creamy notes from it Mm. um a good um, chardonnay you can actually age in like oak barrels to actually give slight bits of vanilla or like butterscotch and that going forward however um the really bad way to 
to do it is to actually just put oak flavorings in it or actually just put a bit of bark in the top just let it kind of float <laughs> in the water <laughs> you put in a bit of oak chips in the top um but that that's that's how artificial it kind of can get in that sense they can put um different tastes in it um and and a lot of it is um finding and filtering so I believe a lot of um, when it gets mass produced as well, they take a lot of the love out of the wine by filtering it and kind of down to actually not letting any kind of the raw grape juice actually come from it. Um, and the way that they filter it as well, um, they filter it. Sometimes they filter it through like things like um, fish scales, fish skins or sorts. Um, they actually put um, egg ground kind of as like a preservative. That's why some... Um, some wines aren't considered vegan and bits like that. And that's how things and um, extra sulfites and all sorts of mm. wines. It, yeah, it can be a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, uh, as, as you say, it's almost like a bit of a bit of a sellout in a way, isn't it? Uh, there's, there, there's no more sort of love in the winemaking. It's sort of just become a, you know, if it's a profitable business, that, that's kind of the main, main principle, isn't it? As opposed to the actual actual product. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, well, one of the things, um, Alistair, I don't think many people know is wine is a living, breathing product in the end of the day. So yeah. when you come to... Um, when you come to the wines that, like I say, people have those comfort bottles, they will go back to the certain wine because they know they love it so much. Um, of course, to, to be honest, wine should taste different every time you have it because it is a living, breathing product, especially with different years, because the grapes are going to be different each year. There's going to be different vintages depending on the weather and all sorts. That's a you really know good what? point. Um, the, so the, absolutely. there must be a lot of, yeah. <laughs> therefore, there must be a lot of intervention in sort of more mass produced wines because there is always a, a consistent um, exactly. flavor profile, I mm-hmm. suppose, isn't it? And taste and everything is the same yeah. and as you and as you quite rightly mentioned it's it's not the same the seasons are different there's good years and bad years isn't there so mm. a lot of it as well as them blending years on years and years and blending all those years and together so i think a lot of the time with supermarkets it's rare to see a year on it and that is purely just because they blend it all together so you can't taste the differences between them they always taste the same because they just blend it and blend it and blend it with years and years um, but I mean, the majority of the wines I sell on carafe, I think, amid like a few sparklings, because in, in general with sparklings, it's rarer to get a vintage, um, but, but normally always just have the year on. So, you know, it's just a pure expression from that year. It's not kind of like masking into anything else. Interesting. Yeah, that's, I think that's. I think we've all learned a lesson here. This has been uh, this has been useful just for me, even if it's just me listening to this. It's, uh, it's hella useful. Um where would you say you are sourcing um, your wines from at the moment? And I suppose second to that, and no doubt this is probably a, an easier question to answer, what, what are the regions that you're just like absolutely loving at the moment? Like what should people be, be, be looking at? What should they be buying? What's, what's interesting at the moment? What's up and coming? I, I imagine there's some really interesting stuff. I, I love the fact that you mentioned Greece um, I I lived in Greece for two years, and I thought that the wine re- region in, in Greece is is, I mean, his, first of all, it's historic. It's been around for, I mean, the scientific term is donkey's years, I think. Um, but it, it's it's had such a bad rep with the um, oh, what's the house? What's the um, Gins with an R? Um, it's the the grape that. Um, 
uh, used to get quite a bit of a bad rep. Do you know it? Is it Ratsina? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It used to have such a bad <laughs> rep, didn't it? Um, or, or at least that's from, uh, I, I read a book on the wines of Greece. I think my Constantinos, um, I think it's Mavarakis or, or something like that, who's a, a sommelier down in Greece. Um, but yeah, I just, just felt, you know, as you mentioned there, the, the Zeno Mavro grape is, how did you describe it as the, the sort of baby Barolo? Um, it's incredible. So, <laughs> I mean, other than Greece, I mean, obviously I can talk about that. I'm, I'm a little bit biased, but what, what sort of regions are, are coming up with some really interesting stuff at the moment? You know, I personally think the US is really getting that. I've, I've been trying some really interesting orange wines that are actually lending themselves more as rosés. Um, so orange wines just being the extended skin contact on a white wine. So, um, I mean, Kelly Fox has a wonderful um, Pinot Gris um, from there, and it's absolutely insane. It looks completely pink. It kind of tastes a bit like Jolly Ranchers, those kind of like, um, like American, I guess, kind of flavours, those kind of like um, red cherry um quince fresh fig um it, oh, it's wonderful yeah um but i think they're doing some really interesting things they're starting to kind of instead of just doing um the traditional kind of i guess you think um california cabernet and the, like napa napa cab and all that kind of thing they're doing something a bit different now i mean um, i also follow a martha stoneman and she's got this one wine called um, Post Filtration White, um, which which is mad. And like, it's, it's a bit kind of similar to like a sour beer thing going on. Oh, wow. It's a bit like a Mexican like Pilsner um, with lime and salt, like watered down pineapple soda. It's, it's very different. And it's so kind of like unfiltered, like raw. It's that kind of really like pure grape juice. And it's just so, so fun. Um, so I think they're definitely ones to kind of like um, keep your eye out from, especially now we're starting to get really cool wines from the US, not, not anything else that anyone's seen before. I think they're a good one to keep your eye on. And what about in, in Europe? Is there, is there anything interesting going on? Either, you know, a little bit close to home. I and mean, also it sounds like there's a ton going on in the UK. So I get a sense <laughs> that there's going to be plenty of wines in, um, in carafe wines uh, stock that, uh, that, that come domestically. But um, w- what do you see in Europe yeah. as well? Do you see anything over there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Italian wine. Um, I drink a lot lot of Italian wine. <laughs> There's so many different um, bits all around, and all from like small different producers. I mean, I lo- love Sicily. I love all the producers there. I mean, to be honest, I'd just love to do a whole um, yeah. whole tour of Italy of all the different ones. Um, but there are a lot of them as well. They're using all kind of native grapes, the ones we don't really know that well, but they kind of go really um well together. Like one of my favorite um producers there is Andrea Occapinti. Um, he does very um, lovely ones with native grapes. Um, and they're just so beautiful. They're so kind of energetic. He was actually um, inspired um, by um, one of the best wines out there, um, Domaine um, 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 Romney um, Conti, which is actually one of the mm. most expensive wines in the world. Um, and he was actually inspired by that. And he actually, um, that was one of the first wines that he tasted. And after that, he decided, right, that's it. I want to make my own wine. So um, <laughs> it's quite interesting to kind of see. See the story um, yeah, and stuff of how they get stuff. there. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And, and and what does what does twenty twenty one and beyond look like for for carafe wine? Like, what what do you kind of sort of see as your you know expectations for the year, or sort of any 
expansionary plans or you know what what what's the focus for for you guys from from sort of now and beyond um, absolutely. So we're looking to actually open up our um, subscriptions. We were looking at that um, for a while. It's just finding out the right time to actually kind of release them to everyone. Yeah. Um, but we do stuff like um, around the world. Um, it's all very kind of inspired by um, Daft Punk. We've got like a, um, <laughs> a photo of them just holding like a glass of wine, a lovely graphic that was created by my designer, Robin. Um, and it's always wonderful, but it's to actually travel around the world um, through your wines and go on like a flight around the globe via it. them. I love it around the world actually like taking you to different places um i've got i've got a cabernet franc from brazil i have a syrah from morocco some really interesting things that you can actually taste as part of that then i've even got um sweet child of wine by guns and roses (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) you said it Love that. Honestly, I just like the puns too much. I think that's one of the things as well. I think that different. You're just having way too much fun with this, aren't you? This isn't a business anymore. You're just having far too much fun. Yeah, <laughs> Love it though. Absolutely. It's like, good. It's one of those kind of points that can kind of like make or break because people don't like puns. They're not going to like craft because I am so punny to a point of it just like being painful for some people but i love it um but nevertheless yeah um, uh, um guns and rose some really interesting like quaffable gluggable wines yeah. Savion, bubbly beaujolais um just really like nice cheeky wines then i've got i want it all inspired obviously by freddie mercury um <laughs> and then i've done a whole thing going hey queens do you want it all and it's all, like really like adventure seeking wine um so that'll be quite nice actually coming up this year to actually have something a bit different and um, in the summer, um, fingers crossed, we're actually really going to try and do park and garden drops um, around Kent. Um, so if people just need that chill bottle of wine in the summer and they don't know where to go for it, I can actually just... Um, <laughs> drop it round which would be quite nice actually um i know i'm um, a few different um, competitors did that in london which was wonderful having little bike um careers that actually just went round and um and, and dropped chill bottles of wine when people wanted it on time slots so if you're ever having a picnic nearby and you're low on wine we'll be here <laughs> hey there you go that's fantastic I've I've learned so much in this uh in in this short time um i think you've been a an absolutely fantastic uh, thank guest. Thank you, thank you, um, Alistair. You've really asked me some questions I wouldn't even think about kind of asking. It's quite nice to actually like pry into different aspects of the business and actually tell your listeners and that and actually experience it a bit more. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed it and no, no doubt everyone will enjoy listening. So thank you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.